Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Good evening. It is Wednesday evening, May the 10th, 2023. A little bit of strong weather out there. Glad to see you made it out. I haven't broken Mark Bailey's record yet, though. Back when he was teaching the class Fortifying Your Faith, he had three severe thunderstorm Wednesday nights in a row. I can't can't even get one. It's already passed, it looks like. Okay. Last week, we were talking about the arguments pro and con as to when the book of Revelation was written. I have one more affirmative and rebuttal to go, and then I'm going to show you two or three more that I just don't understand. I'll show them to you and show you what I mean when it comes to arguments that I don't understand. Maybe you can explain it to me. Let's wrap up, though, with 68 AD, the affirmative Something called the Monarchian Prologues. At the website you see at the BibleEschatology.org, there is this sentence. The Monarchian Prologues that dates back to 250 to 350 AD claims that Paul also wrote these seven churches, possibly Romans, which was a circular letter. It went out to many addresses. Following John's book, thus placing the book even before some of the other of Paul's epistles. I think what this is trying to say is that Revelation, along with some of Paul's letters, are circular letters and that supposedly John's letters were written before some of Paul's letters, which would force the date of Revelation writing to be I don't know, early early 60 ADs, I guess. The rebuttal at a website called biblicaltraining.org, it says this, the Monarchian, Monarchian prologues were short introductory statements that were prefixed to each of the four Gospels in many manuscripts of the Vulgate. Also known as the arguments, they contain brief accounts of each, each evangelist and the reason for writing his account. These Latin introductions are involved, and their meaning is often remote and vague. The fact that these documents are known from antiquity as the Monarchian Prologues indicates that they have been held to date from the 2nd or 3rd century, but more recent critics have shown them to belong to, to the 4th century. So basically, we're talking about a Bible commentary from the 4th century A.D., which dealt mainly with the Gospels, not specifically to Revelation. Even the affirmative is pushing the envelope as far as implications go. In this statement, there is no particular date even mentioned, but this is, these are commentaries on Gospels and not Revelation. Another 68 AD affirmative we've already covered in chapter 11, 
That's where we talked about the verb tenses of chapter 11, where the verb tenses are just all over the place, and you're not going to be able to pick out any one verb tense and, and make anything of it as far as the date for Revelation. And the seven kings plus one, we just discussed that, how the 68 AD folks have their alignment, how the 95 AD folks have their alignment, and then what the alignment is for history. Now, let's get into the ones that I don't really particularly understand. This is an affirmative for, the, for 95 AD called the destruction of Jerusalem. The claim is that the destruction of Jerusalem was strictly political. It was meant to to destroy, basically, the Jewish revolt that occurred between 66 AD and 70 AD. It was a Jewish uprising against Rome, and basically Vespasian said, I have had enough, so he sent General Titus to, to Jerusalem to put an end to it. The Revelation persecution, however was religious in nature, clearly not consistent with the destruction of Jerusalem's Revelation interpretation. Claiming Revelation is not the persecution of the first century church, number one, makes Revelation irrelevant for us today, and number two, absolves us from ever having to deal with Revelation in the first place. That's an interesting argument. The rebuttal... Political versus religious is, is irrelevant. God obviously allowed, revelate, allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed. This, this destruction of Jerusalem, and especially the destruction of the temple, separated the Christians from their Jewish form of worship. It, um, the Christians were no longer tracing their lineages to Abraham because the records were destroyed, uh, according to historical accounts. And also, Jewish worship artifacts were destroyed. So yes, the destruction of Jerusalem was indeed religious as well. So that's the, that's the back and forth. And I am not really sure I'm actually portraying the affirmative and the rebuttal correctly. So uh, feel free to study that and, and figure it out for me. Another one that I'm just not really that sure about is this one. Victorinus of Pateau, I think that's how you pronounce it. In Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, it says, And he says to me, You must prophesy again to the people and to the tongues and the nations and to many kings. This is the verse talking about John after he gets off the island of Patmos. He's going to be continuing his ministry. At this website, newevent.org, you have this sentence that says, He, God, says this because he, John, was on the island of Patmos, condemned to the labor of, of, the, mine, of the mines by Caesar, Caesar Domitian. So clearly, John would, would eventually survive Patmos. He would, fi- he would finish, he would continue his Asian ministry and finish it. And even Irenaeus said that John was seen shortly after Domitian's reign. I'm not really sure where that argument is going, to tell you the truth. I'm, I'm sort of making it up as I go. I'm not really sure what all that means. Here is a rebuttal that Etorinus is a 4th century commentator, not a historian. 
He actually wrote commentators on the Bible, commentaries on the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Revelation. And this happens to be the first mention of John having to be a prisoner in labor mines on the island of Patmos. It's interesting that it's that this topic doesn't even come up until the 4th century AD. Why wasn't it mentioned in the 1st century or the 2nd century as well? I, that's what I just said. Okay. So that's there are arguments like this that I, I, I'm not sure I, I'm understanding them at all. So feel free to study those, figure them out. Here's one for an affirmative for 68 AD. And this one is a real stretch. I, 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 think, I think I halfway understand this. I'm not sure. But in Jerome's book against Jovian, Jovianum, uh, he has this statement. He says, But if thou art near to Italy, thou hast Rome, where we also have an authority close at hand. What a happy church is that on which the apostles pour out their doctrine with their blood, where Peter had a like passion with the Lord, where Paul bathed for his crown the same death with John, where the apostle John was plunged into boiling oil and suffered nothing and was afterwards banished to an island. The claim, the implication from this text is that Paul and John were contemporaries in suffering. They suffered at the same time. And of course, we know Nero murdered Paul. So by implication, it was Nero who tried to kill John as well and then ended up banishing him to an island. That's the, that's the affirmative. The rebuttal, I say affirmative there. This is the rebuttal. Wait. Oh yeah, okay. All this text is doing is comparing the deaths of Peter, Paul, and John. There is no mention of Nero. There is no mention of a date. So that's an example of where, of where you, you take a text of an early historian and you twist it a little bit. You kind of add your own little flavor to it and come up with not only a Caesar, but also a date. Those, those, I don't really understand those that those very well. So I, I may not have, I may not even done them justice. I don't know, but that they, they don't really make that much sense to me. So those are the arguments: pro con for ninety five A.D. and for ninety or for sixty eight A.D. Just a, just a quick review. Here are the lists of the arguments, the affirmatives for ninety five A.D. Irenaeus's statement, Jerome's statement, Eusebius's statement the phrase most modern scholars agree, the issue with Laodicea's wealth, uh, Nero's persecution, the range of the persecution, was the destruction of Jerusalem political or religious? And then the one we just got through talking about, Victorinus, and then, of course, the seven kings plus one. There's the list. Are there any of these that you want to go back and look at again or have a question about or a comment? If you're like me, most of them don't make sense in the first place. It's pretty sad whenever the whenever the rebuttal makes more sense than the affirmative. Yes, sir. Wait, let me get this. If you're going to talk, you got to do it on the mic.
right? <laughs> so then um, we've, we've kind of heard pros and cons for 68 and 95. Um, so are there other dates that you think are more reasonable or that have better arguments for them? Um, a quick answer to that is no. There are no arguments. And these were, I won't say they were made up, but they're stretching them. They're, they're, they're stretching some of, these, some of these historical statements. No one knows when this book was written. If anyone knew, would there be an argument going on? Nope. There's 16 plus dates that are candidate for when the book of Revelation was written, and we have no clue which one is right. We don't know if any of them are right. We, we just don't know. Here are the lists of the ones for 68 A.D. The affirmatives, Irenaeus' statement, once again, the Syriac Bible commentary, uh, the Jewish persecution, where it says the Jews, the Jews could not have persecuted the Christians after 70 A.D. That leads into the Judaizing heretics, that the heretics would have been lessened after the destruction of Jerusalem, supposedly. They weren't, but anyway. The temple referenced in Revelation chapter 11. The fact that John must prophesy again. He would be an awfully old age if he had done it in 95 or 96 AD. So clearly Revelation had to have been written at an earlier date. Things which must shortly come to pass. Only seven churches existed at that time. And those seven churches were written to in Revelation, were addressed by Revelation. We know that, that can't be true. Some apostles were still alive, so the claim that oh, apostles had to be alive in order to make a claim that you are an apostle. Uh, they also which pierced him. Beast number one being Nero, the monarchian prologues we just talked about. The verb tenses from Revelation chapter 11, we talked about that back on chapter 11. And then the seven kings plus one and Jerome's death of Paul and John compared. Are there any of those that you would like to go back and, and review? Assuming they make sense as well. Once again, even these, the rebuttal actually makes more sense than the affirmative. So, all this, all this food fight that's going on between these two dates and other dates as well. It's not just these two dates. It's a bunch of other dates as well. But these are the two main dates that are, that are doing battle with each other. What are, what are the conclusions? Well, no one knows when Revelation was written. Clearly, the date people are pushing are to push an interpretation of the tribulation in Revelation without actually going into what I call the forbidden zone and letting it define tribulation for us. If anybody could actually prove or actually knew when Revelation was written, why are there 16 plus candidate dates? Revelation occurred in history. It was written in history. It was not written in a vacuum. So that's, I believe that's the, the best approach to take with Revelation. Nero started the first wave of severe persecution. Domitian started the second wave. It's not an either or. It's not, well, my Caesar was worse than yours. Yours was a good Caesar. Mine was the bad one. They both were bad.
that leads into this one. Align revelation with history. Who cares about an agenda? We just, I just want to know what the truth is. If the tribulation turns out to be standing at the end of the longest line at Disney World, fine. Okay, that's, that's the tribulation. That's fine. I just want to know what it is. And the only way you're going to know what it is is to not worry about when Revelation was written and letting a date determine what you think about what the tribulation is and letting Revelation tell you what the tribulation actually means. I want to tell you this, and this, is, this will get under some folks' skin. In the last 30 plus years that I've been studying Revelation, I have only heard two times someone go into Revelation and let Revelation prove what the tribulation is. Even the 95 ADers who say the tribulation is the, is the persecution of the church. I've never heard a 95 ADer actually go and prove to me from Scripture what the tribulation actually is. That's called oral tradition, folks. That means somebody in the previous two or three generations told me what to think. That's what I'm going to think. And we're not actually getting into the scripture and letting the scripture define it for us. Did I use the did I use the comparison about the book of Matthew? Have I told you that comparison already? We don't know when the book of Matthew was written. Some people say fifty-five to fifty to fifty-five A.D. Other people say eighty to ninety A.D. So, are we going to change the meaning of baptism, for example? inside the book of Matthew based upon when we thought the book was, was, was written? Of course not. But the question is, why do we do that to Revelation? But, we're, but we let Matthew... He said, he said Matthew is not a prophetic book. The, uh, the principle still stands, though. We don't interpret any book in the Bible based upon the date we think it was written. We don't change a major theme in any book except Revelation. If we're going to do that to Revelation, let's do that to the rest of the Bible. We might as well be consistent, right? Revelation is the only book we do that to. I don't understand why we do that. Um, And of course, historians... Historians cannot even prove the date that John was on the island of Patmos. There are no Roman archives. There is nothing from archaeology that they have found that records actually when John was actually on the island of Patmos. We know he's there from Revelation, but even historians don't know when they were there. So there's your 16 dates. Which one is right? Are any of them right? Don't know. Nobody can prove it. Even those arguments that we were going across that that was involved in this food fight, none of those prove anything. If they did, there wouldn't be a food fight. We don't know when Revelation was written, and we should not care when it was written. We We know the general time span. It was written sometime in the last half of the first century. So let's apply it to history. Let's let history be our guide and let the forbidden zone tell us what it wants us to know and not worry about pushing an agenda based upon a date or pushing a date based upon an agenda. Because nobody can prove a date, period. Okay? Any comment on that? Let the flaming begin. If you're mad at me, okay, here's your chance. Here's your chance to speak up. Hang on.
Why, why is it so important to know when the book of Revelation was written? I agree. They're making a big fuss about nothing. Yep, I agree. I agree. Yep, I agree. I agree. That's right. Anyone else? These arguments are not a matter of do you agree with them or not. It's a matter of these are the arguments that are out there, so be ready for them because you're going to run across them on websites, you're going to run across them in real life. Whether someone speaks them to you or they're on a website or they're on a forum, you're going to run into them. We're actually going to get to chapter 18. Okay. Mr. Mark, hang on just a second. Let me see if I have a... Let's see if I have a painting for Revelation chapter 18. Let's see. 21, nope. 20, nope. 19, 17. No, okay. There's no painting. Okay. Mark, would you be so kind as to... Read chapter 18, please. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen, and am no widow, and will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, 
fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For on one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship and sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters or trumpeters, shall not be heard in you any more. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you any more. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints, and of all who were slain on the earth. Thank you. Interesting chapter. Now remember in chapter 16 we had the final judgment of the villain of Revelation. Chapter 17 we had the positive ID. This chapter... Is that me squeaking? Okay, it's not me. Okay. Okay. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Chapter 16 was the final judgment of the villain of Revelation. Chapter 17 was the positive ID of the villain's pearl of Revelation, and that included some accomplices. Chapter 18 gets into who those accomplices are. Now, here is, a, here is a basic overview of chapter 18. Verses 4 through 5, the saints are told, come out from among them because I don't want the plagues I'm sending to the villain to hit you. God is warning the Christians, don't, don't live like these people. Verses 11 through 14 are the merchandise, the list of merchandise that's going to be impacted from the judgment of the villain of Revelation. We're going to get into those, those merchandise in just a moment. Chapter 18 is a chapter of responses. Verses 1 through 14 is God's response and the fallout. Verses 15 through 19 is the merchants of the world's response to, to the judgment and, and how it's going to impact them. And then... Verses 20 through 24, we have heaven's response. Before we get to the merchandise, uh, I want to cover 
couple or three verses that have some interesting words in them. Um, back in 1611, these words may have meant something that they don't mean to us today. So I'd like to go over them just very briefly. Verse 3, For all nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchandise and the merchants of the earth are waxed, are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. That word abundance is actually this top Greek word. It means power. The direct definition of this word is power. Delicacies, the direct definition of the Greek word is self-indulgent luxury. So basically it says the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the power of her self-indulgent luxury, basically. The word deliciously is found in verse 7. How much she glorified herself, lived deliciously. That actually is this Greek word, which means luxuriously. We have the word deliciously also also coming up in in chapter 18, verse 9. It is a different Greek word, but it also means luxurious as well, luxuriously. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication and live luxuriously with her. So you have these kings of the earth who are also the accomplices. They benefited greatly from, um, from having dealings with the villain of Revelation. And the word costliness comes up in the King James Version in verse 9. It says, Wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. Costliness is actually defined in modern terms, by the word wealth or riches. So, those words back in 1611 may have had a different meaning than they have today, but these are the direct, the direct uh, definitions of these words from the Greek word. Okay, merchandise. Lots of merchandise is mentioned in this chapter. I'm going to do something just a little bit different. I'm going to take this list of merchandise actually from BibleHub.com. The King James gets it right, but King James does something rather interesting. It will combine a couple of merchandises into one single word. I'm going to go straight with the Greek that actually separates some of these words into their own word. You can get maps like this online. Just do a, a search for... First century trade routes, Roman. This is one of the examples that you'll see. It shows a lot of the merchandise and where the merchandise came from. So let's start, let's start through the merchandise. The first merchandise mentioned is gold. The gold that the Roman Empire dealt with came from Southeast, South Central Asia, North Africa, Western Europe, and Northern Europe. Gold is obviously, even back then, was very popular. Used in jewelry, used in coins. The next merchandise is silver. Most of the silver came from northern Asia. You had coins, you had, you had uh, dishes, pots, cups. Valuable stones. I think... I think uh, King James says, precious stones, valuable stones. They are used for necklaces, rings, 
jewelry. They came from India, Egypt, in the Persian Gulf, agates, carnelian, turquoise, garnet, emeralds, jasper. The list goes on and on. India, Egypt, and Persia were the main places these came from. You're going to see through these nations where these products came from, you're going to see the wide range and how far away they had to go to get these these priceless items. Pearls. These are actually supposedly uh, first century gold and pearl earrings that I found on the internet. Pearls came from India, the Red Sea, and the Persian Gulf. Now, King James says fine linen, but the Greek word itself is not only fine linen, but it also includes cotton. Cotton is also an emphasis. This came from Egypt. The fine linen came from Egypt, India, North Italy, Turaco, Spain. The cotton came from India and North Africa. And in a moment, you're going to see why we're going through each one of these individually. Purple dye. Purple dye was used for royalty. The purple dye and the cloth mainly came from India, the Red Sea, and the Persian Gulf. Apparently, this dye came from a plant, and that plant was very expensive. Do what? Okay. I don't know what that is. Oh, okay. Really? Well, back then, that was, that was pretty much reserved for the wealthy. Silk. China. The scarlet dye, even though the scarlet dye was not as expensive as the purple dye, it, was still, it still had its own prestige. They used, purple, they used scarlet dye in, in, in their clothes as well. Thion wood. I believe, uh, I believe the King James says thion wood or citron. Citron actually is a type of citrus plant. It's any type of wood that has an odor to it, a fragrance like pine. Um, a lot of these thion trees came from uncultivated hills on the coast of Africa. It's also called citron and citrus. It's just basically scented or fragrant wood. This particular wood was very valuable for making furniture. All right. The word ivory, the Greek word actually is, it is ivory, but it's actually called elephantine. That's the first time I've, I've run across that word. Anything and everything elephant, ivory. These are two statues that were supposedly discovered in Pompeii, Italy. Ivory, very popular. Precious woods for making furniture. One of the precious woods, woods they consider precious, was oak. And I like oak too. In fact, it's my favorite kind of wood for, for furniture. The oak came from Mediterranean, Britain, Asia Minor, Sarmatia, Central Europe, and all over the Roman Empire. I don't remember. Okay. The King James says brass. The Greek word actually means copper, brass, or bronze. It can include all three of those. Uh, Copper, brass, and bronze came from the Middle East and India. 
used for making helmets, used for coins, used for little statues. You have iron made for weapons and, and helmets. The iron came from Middle East, India, Central Europe, Northern Asia. And one of the most well-known items that the Romans and the people in this period had was marble. Marble was used for the floors. They were used in these pillars of these, of these temples. And I assume that the website was correct, that this is a marble statue of the wife of Augustus Caesar. Very popular, very craved marble. Cinnamon. Cinnamon, Central Eastern Africa, India, and Arabian traders. Uh, read this to you. According to Pliny, a Roman pound, which is about 11 and a half ounces, of cinnamon cost up, can cost up to 300 denarii, the wages of 10 months' labor. The emperor Nero is said to have burned a year's worth of the city's supply of cinnamon at the funeral for his wife in A.D. 65. That's a lot of cinnamon. Now, this is interesting. The King James Version says odors. The Greek text splits the word odors out to spices and incense. These spices and incense came from India, China, Indonesia, and included roses, lavender, quinces, pomegranates, grapes, rosemary, cinnamon, the list goes on and on. Spices and incense. Instead of ointments, the Greek says myrrh. Now, myrrh is used to create ointments. It's it's medicinal. It's used for skin cream. Um, It had medicinal... Oh, yeah, it was also burned as incense. So that was part part of your incense as well. It came from India, China, Indonesia... It was all over the, um, the Middle East as well, I believe. It ends up being a resin that, that came out of the bark of some of the trees. You have frankincense. Ooh. This came from Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, Somalia. You had wine. came from the vineyards of Italy, Greece, France, Germany, Portugal, Spain. Possibly South Central Asia, Asia Minor, and Southeast Arabia. It turns out the city of Pompeii was one of the storage cities for Rome's supply of wine. So when Mount Vesuvius destroyed Pompeii, it pretty much destroyed most of Rome's supply of wine. Olive oil from Spain, from olive trees throughout the Roman Empire, especially the Mediterranean area. You had finest flour from Egypt, North Africa, and Sicily. You had grain wheat from from Egypt, North Africa, and Sicily. You had domesticated animals, and I've read commentaries that said that that could include exotic animals from Africa as well, like lions, tigers, zebras, whatever. 
We're talking about North North Africa, northern France, all throughout Asia and Europe and Mesopotamia. Sheep, that's the Middle East. You had horses, horses and chariots. Actually, it's horses and carriages, four-wheeled carriages, in fact, from the Mesopotamia area. They're the ones that designed these things and built them. And from that came the two-wheeled chariots. The horses came from Greece. Now, uh, the King James says, slaves and souls of men. The literal Greek is the bodies and the breath of humans. So basically, they, they owned everything about them. These slaves came from Europe, Mediterranean, North Africa, Syria, Germany, Balkans, Greece, and any other lands that the the Roman Empire conquers. One of the spoils, one of the spoils of, of war, if you win, is bringing back slaves. And finally, the fruits which thy soul lust after. Uh, the literal translation of fruits is autumn fruit or ripe fruit. And that came from all over the place. The, uh, the Pompeii video we saw showed that that fish and fruit was a major part of these people's diet. And the fish and the fruit came from everywhere. So there's, there's your list of what was impacted by the judgment God made on the villain of Revelation. And we already know it, it impacted the, the pocketbooks of all these, all these kings of the earth, all the merchants, all the people who had ships. It impacted just about everybody. And you heard the list of names of the countries where, where they had to go to get these items from. So the question is, with all this list, who in the first century had the capability, had the power, had the money to go all these different places and purchase all these kinds of goods? It was in Egypt. This is one of the characteristics of the villain of Revelation. This is what's being impacted And this is who is being impacted because God is passing judgment on the villain. The only, the only entity I can think of that would have this kind of power, this kind of prestige, this kind of money would be Rome. So that's just another, another feather in the cap for saying probably Rome is indeed the villain of Revelation. I think we're about to get caught by a bell. Let's just get to this next one right quick. Why were these why were these products and all these people's wealth being impacted? Well, it's interesting. Chapter 18 tells us once again, just like chapter 16 told us in other chapters through Revelation, it was because in the villain was found the blood of prophets and saints. And number two, because God has avenged you, talking about the apostles and the prophets, God has avenged you on her. That's why the judgment is taking place. That's why all these goods are about to disappear. 
at least they're not going to be as plentiful as they were before. And with this wealth gone, here's the list of people who are going to mourn the loss of this wealth, the loss of these products, the loss of this trade. The villain of the Revelation, verse 8, verse 9, the kings of the earth, verse 11, the merchants, verse 17, the shipmasters, all who had ships, sailors, and all who trade by sea. The only entity in the first century that I know of who can impact, who can have this type of impact has to be Rome. No one else is that, is that powerful. Any comments on that? Saved by the bell. Yeah, in one hour, the judgment is made. When it actually takes place, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years a day with God. We don't know the actual time frame. We don't know when this stuff is actually going to start taking place. We know the judgment comes in a day, just like the final judgment is coming in a day. Yeah, yeah. Be careful sticking dates on things. That gets dangerous. Yeah. Thank you. That is all. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.